You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Modern Web Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy. You can follow me on Twitter at Lady Leet, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ben Lush. Hi, Ben. Hey, how are you? Very good. I'm so excited today because we get to talk to Evan Yu, who is the creator of Vue.js. Hi, Evan, and welcome. Hi. Great to be here. So you have been working on so many amazing things lately. It's hard to keep up. Um, you know, I, I saw your tweet about how your GitHub has been kind of blasting <sighs> yeah. off. Lots of dark green lately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know just a lot of really fun things coming out of the view community so it's so encouraging to see like even in times of COVID that y'all are just going crazy I mean do you have more time are you more inspired because you have uh, more time? it's probably like honestly like COVID for me like the work is almost the same because I work from home before this so like work-wise the environment isn't really that much different for me uh mm -hmm. but I guess um it, it actually has a negative impact on me because my kids have to stay home. So I have to actually like figure out how to, you know, take care of them and deal with them all the time. Yeah. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in exactly the same boat. Like I was working yeah. from home before all this and now I'm working from home with, with kids that yeah, walk into much my office. With kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and here's me just wanting to get a cat. <laughs> they can be difficult too. They walk on your keyboard and yeah. That's true. <laughs> so let's um, hop into, you know, I guess we have to talk about Vue 3, of course, because mm -hmm. that is kind of like the thing that is on everybody's minds when it comes to Vue. Um, love to kind of, you know, talk about some of the di key differentiators. What are you, what are you looking forward to? Why are you excited mm -hmm. about Vue 3? So, uh, yeah. So um, I, I guess we can look at Vue 3 from a, a few different aspects. So uh, what's interesting is uh, I've kind of found, um, like I always talk about balance when it, when it comes to like choosing or designing frameworks. And uh, if you look at some of the most popular options right now, like React and the new kid on the block Svelte and uh, Angular Ivy, um, you kind of see a trend where, um, where React is putting more and more bet on the runtime side where uh, concurrent mode is all about uh, scheduling things on the fly and trying to figure out the best way to do the work. Um, and Svelte and Ivy are, uh, and Ember in some way, are sort of putting more bet on the compiler side. Uh, I still remember you know, the blog post Tom Dale wrote a long time ago, like frameworks are becoming compilers and all that. So uh, you take, these template-based solutions, because of the, the existence of templates, gives the compiler more opportunity to do smart things ahead of time and produce more optimized runtime code, right? Um, uh, and in, in that sense, Vue is trying, Vue is uh, interesting because when we, dis, when we did Vue 2, um, Vue 1 was more like Angular 1, where we compiled the template and just directly worked with raw DOM. So Vue 2 adopted the virtual DOM so that we get the underlying ability of um, the flexibility of the virtual DOM underneath 
but we still have a template, right? We compile, we're compiling templates into virtual DOM render code. And originally it was kind of a naive, naive approach where it's more or less just like compiling JSX. Not much magic is done. But over time, we started to find more and more uh, opportunities to optimize the compile output. So V3 is kind of a, uh, uh, um, so V3's design was started with all these uh, knowledge that we gained while working on V2, knowing that um, we have control over the runtime, the virtual DOM runtime. We also have control, complete control over the template to JavaScript compilation process. So if we design the runtime uh, from the ground up, knowing that a compiler is available, we can sort of, we don't have to follow the traditional virtual DOM path. We can uh, design a virtual DOM runtime that is aware of the compiler hints. We can design a virtual DOM runtime that, you know, um, so essentially V3, the unique point is, we have a very, very optimized template compiler that can output very, very optimized runtime code. But at the same time, it's still a virtual DOM runtime. So if you decide that you want to get out of the template, just directly write, virtual DOM code, render function, or even JSX, you can still do that. And it just fall back to fully dynamic diffing. Uh, but if you use the template, it just generates code that's much more optimized and does a lot less work um, at the runtime. Um, so I think that is, um, architecture-wise, that's the, probably the most differentiating factor. Uh, compared to, say, Svelte or Ivy, they mostly produce sort of um, imperative directly emit imperative code that's the user will have no control over um, so it's kind of the rendering is sort of a black box you can't really say i want to write directly hand write the rendering instructions myself it has to be generated by the compiler but in view it can either be generated by the compiler or you can sort of take control and just do everything in javascript yourself so uh, i think like that's kind of the most defining part of about v3 um, in terms of rendering. Uh, and the other aspect is the state management side. Um, so I think, um, again, this is interesting because um, React is um, more or less taking the immutable and pool-based approach um, where it assumes whenever you change something, you send a signal to the root and the root will try to figure out you know, the whole tree, whether, whether some part of the tree has changed and try to try to default that. Um, and I would say, I would put that into the sort of more brute force diffing or dirty checking because virtual DOM diffing, like the full diffing is still sort of dirty checking. Uh, and Svelte is going more of the putting the reactivity into the compiler time. Uh, so it's just detecting your syntax and trying to generate code that, um, um, so let's say you have some state mutating code, Svelte will detect that and generate a um, code that notifies the runtime something has changed. So again, Vue is somewhere in the middle where we still have our you know, reactivity tracking system, what most people know Vue for. Um, but at the same time, we sort of redesign the API. So uh, a lot of you know about the composition API, which is a whole new set of API exposed in Vue 3. A lot of people think of that as sort of a equivalent to React hooks, but surprisingly, when we were implementing Vue Composition API, there wasn't too much work to be done because uh, the internal reactivity system is works exactly the same way. It's still 
uh, wrapping your op plane objects into reactive proxies and um, turning them into the reactive versions and tracking property access on uh, tracking the property access and tracking the property mutations, triggering changes as necessary. So the fundamental mechanism is exactly the same with U2. And in fact, what we did is simply take some of the internal APIs, expose them, and they kind of become the composition API. So it's just a more uh, direct access to use reactivity system, which is kind of a black box in U2, um, which at the time was an intentional de design decision because we felt um, we want to hide as much magic as possible. But React Hooks kind of showed, showed that uh, when you expose these primitives, uh, it actually uh, offers very, very powerful mechanism for composing state, uh, even outside of your components. We realized, hey, like we already have all of this. Why don't we just expose it? And then we get something really, really uh, with the same uh, similar composition, logic composition power as React Hooks. So that's where the composition API in Vue 3 came about. So um, yeah, so primarily Vue 3 is really about rendering. That's like combining the compiler and the runtime to get the best of both worlds. And uh, in terms of state side, we're still taking, um, still like going from where Vue came from, the uh, reactive mutable state objects route, but we're just exposing the internals to unlock new uh, more flexible ways to to leverage it and compose logic across components. Yeah, that, I guess that's a lot, but uh, I think that is primarily what V3 uh, is uh, brings to the table. I think it's awesome. I think that uh, from what I've gathered just recently, like, and I haven't actually used Vue. I'm sorry, in, in any in any meaningful way, but I, I feel like Vue's probably a little ahead of the game in comparison to contemporaries at the moment uh as far as like those the sorts of like view two like view two using um virtual dom under the hood uh the the idea that you're getting to where you can expose some of these hooks like i worked on uh angular and angular ivy obviously and i think that a lot of people don't realize that most frameworks under the hood whenever hooks were came out and and react like most people don't really realize that those sorts of hooks like they exist in almost everybody's framework it's just usually they're not exposed for for people or they're not exposed in any ergonomic way that you would ever want to really use them so mm -hmm. i think this is i think it's a pretty interesting choice um and i'm kind of excited to see how that rolls out yeah so i can sort of tangentially go into how composition api differs from hooks like i don't want to be React fashion in this episode, but right. a lot of people sort of think when they see the composition API, the view composition API for the first time, they're like, oh, isn't this just React hooks? Um, and, and there are some pretty fundamental differences. Like if you use React hooks, you know they are, uh, when you call use state, it's, it, it's internally hooking into the current React component instance to get the state into your current closure. So every time your component renders, it captures a new closure of all these variables mm -hmm. uh, inside your component closure. Um, so that is an intentional design by the React team because they want it to happen so that every time you render, you have naturally have a closure that captured all the current state at that very time. So which is very concurrent friendly. So you can sort of 
assume this captured state is safe to be say deferred or distributed or scheduled to to you know to be computed at different times so which is critical for con concurrent mode but that also creates a bunch of problems for example when you call use effect you have to make sure you pass the correct dependencies to make sure these inner closures invalidate correctly um, which has been a kind of a usability problem so they had to introduce an ESLink plugin to help uh, to prevent people from shooting themselves in the foot uh, but at the same time the uh, the plugging sometimes can be too aggressive to fix things automatically and then then that leads to the problem like when you are too correct uh, you invalidate things too often and it kind of leads to performance problems because every time you create new variables pass them down to child components the child component just thinks, oh, the props have changed. I need to re-render. And if this happens at every level, you kind of have a lot of cascading component updates. When a parent component updates, it just like accidentally causes all its child components to update, update, and all the way down. And then that leads to the need to manually call use memo or use callback to cache these things. Yeah. So it's kind of yeah. going full circle in a way, uh, right? Um, so you are sort of creating some performance problems in order to be concurrent friendly, which was supposed to solve performance problems. Yeah, um, I've complained that that was, that, that it also kind of leaks in implementation detail too, right? Like, so if you have a component in React and you say it exposes some event, and you pass, in, in React, everyone wants to pass like an inline arrow function in yeah. the template. And so like the, the bit of that that people don't understand is when they do that, they're creating a new function instance every single time. Exactly. And then inside you've got some use effects that wants to wire that up for whatever reason, if you have a use effect that wants to wire that up, then you have this, this problem where your dependencies, that linter is gonna want you to add that as a dep dependency, but it's going to do an instance diff on it, which means yep. that every single time it renders, it's gonna yep, tear exactly. down that effect and wire it back up. and it's. And you, so you have to know that in advance and put use callback on whatever yeah. you pass in, which means that you have to know implementation details of the component you're consuming. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's problematic. Yeah. So this is something that Composition API uh, does just does, it's a problem that we simply don't have because Vue 3 Composition API is set up once and then it's just like normal stateful JavaScript objects. So you don't have the recreating uh, recreating identities on every render sort of problem. Another thing is like even inside templates, right? So you can write inline arrow functions in event handlers and view templates as well. So the Vue 3 compiler will actually generate code that uh, caches the initial inline handler uh, and reuse it on subsequent renders so that it never caused the child component to re-render. And it's smart enough to know whether your inline arrow function reference, references a scope variable that may change. So if it references a scope variable that may change, it will preserve a new function on every render. But if it's sort of static, it's always referring to only the root component state, then this function doesn't have to be recreated on every render and we'll just optimize it away. So um, you get the same function on every render. Um, a lot of these, um, minor performance problems we just try to sort of solve it either at the api design level or just let the compiler optimize it away
That's exciting. There's a, yeah. I think the beauty about frameworks, and I think this is kind of why framework wars will never go away, is because <laughs> we all learn from each other. Yeah. And as yeah. you look at the new things that are coming out in all the different frameworks, uh, you know, when you're designing, you're able to do better, you know, or think about all the sort of pitfalls yeah. between this. And, you know, I'm sure that, I mean, who knows what framework will come next? Yeah, I think like, I think like V3, although it started sort of around the time, um, I think before React Hooks was announced and also uh, like before the time that felt kind of really caught on, uh, but like the, because the design process was kind of long, like we actually sort of get to absorb a lot of the interesting ideas we found in React Hooks or in Svelte, which are both, you know, great technologies. Um, but then in the same process, we kind of realized, hey, like, here's what we can do differently. Maybe we can do something that's, that's uh, we, we can take the good parts and then improve upon it and have some things unique in view that we can take advantage of to make this even better. So uh, that's sort of the, the design process that Vue has always kind of followed. Um, and I think, and I hope someday, like we have things that you know other frameworks can sort of take inspiration from. I think, um, uh, like Vite is something that we hope that can benefit all frameworks. In some yes, way. yes. That I I've seen that you've been very very active in developing Vite, spelled V I T E. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about Vite and and what your hopes are for it? Yeah. So, um, so we've. I guess all of us developers today know Webpack and inevitably most of us have used Webpack. And even if you don't use Webpack, you probably use a bundler in some way like parcel or rollup or whatever. Like eventually you have to take all your modules together and put them together, right? Um, so people have tried to use native ES imports uh, to, to make websites. Unfortunately, there are just, uh, at this moment, it's very hard to get the performance right in production because native ES imports creates a huge network request in your, uh, waterfall. Um, so unless you have perfect HTTP2 push, it's just not going to load really well. So you still need bundlers for production. That, uh, that's kind of a given fact, but do you really need bundlers for development, right? During development, um, you are we what we are used to the dev servers that we used to say for example webpack dev server what it does is it's actually still bundling your code stores it in memory and then serve it to your to a page so that you can work on it during development so every time um without if without hot module replacement you're essentially generating a whole new bundle and reload that in, in your browser um so even with hot module replacement uh, there's still a lot of work because you're trying to verify the, you still have to kind of, the bundler still has to crawl the whole import graph and try to like uh, determine what modules to update and um, what modules to invalidate. So that's still a lot of work. Um, and more importantly, like whenever you start the server, the dev server, the whole project has to be bundled first before you can actually see it on the screen, right? So if you have a, um, a project with like maybe 20 screens, 
20 routes. And each route has maybe 10 to 20 different components. So you have like close to 400, 500 components or modules in your application. All of these have to be processed, compiled, bundled first before you can start working on that single screen, which just doesn't make sense, right? So um, Feed builds on the premise that bundling is unnecessary during development and we use native ES imports. Uh, leverage, let the browser do the, do the imports. Right, so the browser becomes your uh, import graph crawler. So your entry file, so every file is just served to the browser with their native ES module syntax, ES module import syntax, uh, just, just leave it. Um, so the browser will import the things, send a request to the server. So the server will just grab the according file, compile them if necessary, right? Like um, the, the, the actual work we need to do is sometimes we need to rewrite the imports to support, say, importing from a node modules uh, dependency. So we need to do some lightweight rewrite, but the rewrite can be done extremely fast by using uh, ES module lexer, which is uh, a very great uh, tool by uh, Guy Bedford. Um, so uh, he wrote this, which is a blazing fast lexer to find all the import statements in your ES module code. Uh, and we can essentially determine if there's no imports, we don't even need to touch this file. If there are imports, we simply check if the import is a bare import that the browser does not support natively, and then we will resolve the module on the fly and rewrite the import. So what your browser get is completely valid JavaScript with uh, native ES import syntax, and the browser will make the according requests to the server. The server just sends back the right files. So so that essentially gets rid of the whole bundling process. Um, and, uh, and it's also truly on demand because say you're working on the current screen, uh, when the server starts, it doesn't need to compile anything. The server just starts and it just waits for the browser to actually send the requests in. So the service always starts instantly. So when you work on that single screen, uh, because the current screen only imports this many modules, only those modules will actually get compiled or need to get compiled, right? So this is what, what I mean by truly on demand. So you only ever compile the files that you need on the current screen to be able to start working on it. And then on top of that, Veet um, supports hot module replacement. And Veet's hot module replacement is extremely fast because um, the, uh, we still do have to do graph analysis, but the graph analysis is kind of free because the browser already kind of does that for us. So we just basically record all the import relationships as we receive the requests. Um, and then whenever a file change, we just send a message to the browser telling, hey, just reload this, uh, re-request this module and all its dependencies. Um, and we get blazing fast reloads, uh, hot module replacement, not just full page reloads. So this sounds uh, pretty cool. Have you yeah. seen uh, Snowpack at all? Like Fred, yeah. Fred Schott's thing? Is it very similar to that or? It, it is similar in some way, but our approach to how files are compiled is somewhat different. Uh, Snowpack 2, uh, essentially you have, um, you specify how you compile these files by using some build scripts uh, and it is essentially maintaining an in-memory file system that uh, whenever you edit something, it takes that file, compiles it, and saves it in a in-memory file system cache. And th when the browser requests it, 
it returns it. So it's it's kind of similar in that aspect, um, but Veet sort of is more opinionated in the sense that we try to mirror what people are used to in the Webpack ecosystem. So a lot of more things work out of the box. Um, for example, um, we managed to get, say, uh, relative file assets imports. Um, so pretty much all the features you're used to in Webpack, uh, like in CRA or VCLI, we managed to make it work with native use module imports, plus pod module replacement, which uh, Snowpack does not really support. Um, are you going to so, be able so, to update uh, Vue CLI to, to use V? Like, so if someone has an existing Vue CLI app, mm -hmm. yeah. right, where they, will they be able to, like, I'm assuming you're, you're probably using Webpack or something under the hood right now. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to be able to update? So technically, the if they don't use, if they don't use like esoteric custom Webpack, twists, then they should be able to have the same source code and just work in V. Like we are, if you take a newly scaffolded CRA app or a UCLI app and just put it into Vite, it should just pretty much work with some, maybe some minor tweaks, but most of the philosophy is the same. Um, and then for production, we use this rollup to bundle it for production. So, um, so the difficulty or the challenge of this approach is like you kind of have to duplicate a lot of logic between the dev server and the bundling. So we design, we essentially sort of, for the use end users, that's still invisible. It's just a bit more work on our side. Uh, but still, like, it's, it's surprisingly, uh, surprisingly, it's not as much work as I'd expected. So I think I started the project almost like three weeks ago. Uh, and I've got it to pretty much working. I even added uh, a service worker to cache already compiled files. So when you re reload the page, it doesn't need to even hit the server. Uh, and even if you hit the server, the server kind of knows whether a file has changed or not. And if a file doesn't change, it just returns 304. So the browser will not really transfer anything from the server. So uh, a lot of areas to further even optimize this. Um, and, I, and in practice, it's just, uh, it's just a much smoother, faster experience than having to wait for Webpack to bundle everything and then <laughs> reload. Yeah, that's interesting. It seems like, uh, like there's been a lot more push to kind of move away from Webpack by various groups. Like, I don't think that uh, like React has any, any intent of doing that, but obviously like Angular is, has moved to Bazel uh, for, for yeah. more Googly reasons than anything else, because Bazel mm -hmm. is essentially Google's internal build tool blaze but um mm -hmm. yeah there's the uh there's that there's there's what you're working on then there's all these other efforts like snowpack and and certain things like that it, it's it's uh it's very interesting to me that there seems to be like a move away from that like i know that webpack has been slow mm -hmm. um what was yeah. the driving thing to kind of get away from webpack is it just mostly the speed of the the build or it's it's first the speed of the build. The second is um, so so I came up with the idea of the dev server first, and I added the bundler bundling process later. And when I was adding the bundling process, I realized um, if we're already doing all of this, um, I think like Webpack just carries a lot of baggage from the the, uh, the CJS days. 
because uh, Webpack was initially just built to bundle node modules. Okay? Uh, a lot of um, legacy requires stuff, whereas a bundler like Rollup is designed with ES imports uh, from the ground up. Uh, so Rollup is ES imports first, and CommonJS is kind of an afterthought. And that aligns with uh, Vite's dev server, which is native ES module imports first. Uh, and CommonJS is kind of just like, you shouldn't really be using CommonJS if you're using Vite, right? So, um, so I think that aligns really well. So it's not really a knock on Webpack. Webpack is still a very powerful, flexible tool. Uh, it's, it's so flexible that you can pretty much bend it to do anything you want. But at the same time, you know, because of that flexibility, it induces all this complexity in, inherent in it. So it's kind of slow, even when you're just to do some simple stuff. Um, so I think Vite is sort of this, um, if we can just get rid of all the common JS burdens and go from ES, native ES module imports from day one, what would the dev setup be like? Can it be lighter? Can it be faster? Right? Can, can it be closer to the experience we had in the old days where uh, you start an index HTML, you, you write some files, you import them, and you just start a dev server and everything just the box, even TypeScript. Um, TypeScript, JSX, TSX, uh, PostCSS, CSS modules, all of these just work out of the box with zero configuration. Um, it's also using ES build underneath. Um, ES build is uh, TSX, JSX, and ES next to ES compiler that, um, that is written in Go. So it's, it's native and it's like orders of magnitude faster than all these JavaScript equivalents. Uh, so I did a bunch of benchmark and found out it's like, it takes only like two to three milliseconds to So, uh, so if you put that behind a dev server, that's going to be a huge difference when you have a TypeScript based project. Um, you still have to be so, used TSC to do the type checking though, I imagine, right? Yeah, but do that from the IDE, right? So yeah. if you already, already have your IDE to do the type checking, then having the dev server do that is just completely redundant, right? Yeah. So you should I guess use you could just do that trans during like, yeah, just, just do it during continuous integration or something. Yeah. Is that a is that a view project? Is that kind of like your own side project? So it started out as a personal experiment, but I found it to be so promising that I think we're trying to uh, steer new view users, especially people starting out with view three. We hope this could be the default, just so much nicer. So the one as as somebody that works on like a a uh, library and not necessarily a framework. One of the things that, that kills me personally though, is like what we haven't gotten to. So is that a library author can publish, you know, say the latest and greatest JavaScript syntax and then mm -hmm. have other people down level it as they need to appropriately. Like right. I'm, I'm kind of beholden to publish like ES5 
with you know whatever module syntax but um like it just adds so much more bloat that would not be mm -hmm. there if people could just be like oh well i've got the typescript files or i've got the the yeah. you know, whatever and i'm just going to down level the, that myself that is in no. fact the the default premise in Vite as well so Vite oh, really? doesn't exclude no dependencies for processing at all because it's so fast it doesn't really need to uh so um so when you do that there are also ways to um I, I do need to talk about the downside of using native es module imports for development that is uh when you say you have a project that imports a huge dependency like lodash es which if you import something from lodash es it imports 600 files directly in the in its main entry right uh, so when you do that your browser essentially are making 600 parallel requests to the server which no matter how fast the server can respond it still jams the network stack uh, so it kind of creates this like uh, congestion at the network level um, so some way to get around with that is like you can pre-bundle some of the dependencies into a single es module uh, and interestingly snowpack does that uh, so so in some way snowpack can be used as a complementary tool alongside heat to pre-bundle your dependencies into es modules so that you get faster uh reloads during development and um and yeah so the philosophy in terms of like say downgrading stuff in Vite is um Vite does not do any sort of compatibility stuff out of the box it does not ship babel does not try to do pre auto prefixer or anything like that uh, it assumes you're targeting uh, the latest and greatest browsers but if you want to say downgrade you should do that at the uh, as a part of the bundling process right so um, we expose ways for you to add custom roll-up plugins so you can very easily write a roll-up plugin that takes the final bundle chunks and then run babel on top of that development, which, again, is, uh, in my opinion, unnecessary. So the, um, <laughs> go ahead, Tracy. I was going to say, so, so is Vite doesn't bundle, that's replacing bundlers um no it, it's uh it's a um it's more integrated build tool i actually would i was struggling in defining it as well right because uh it it uses a bundler underneath it uses rollup for production uh -huh. builds it has a completely custom dev server to serving your source code during development so uh it's sort of a dev server plus a build command together so i i'd say that's like it's just a web dev build tool in general so it's yeah. not like an yeah, anti I, I don't know it's not like if you take a bundle it's if you take a bundler and you take Vite and they, you touch them together they won't explode that'll it's, it's fine it's not an it's it's kind of a, technically it's not mutually exclusive with the third-party bundler say like you um, if you take the same source code and like feed it to a parcel it could probably work right so that's the that's the thing it's interesting because um 
say Webpack or uh, even Rollup or Parcel, they're all eventually capable of doing bundling the same source code. So there is a common sort of conventional treatment of all these common files. Like if you import a CSS, all these conventions, all of these bundlers can be made to support. So if we can arrive on that common ground, uh, so Beach will be able to serve that kind of code. And any bundler will be able to bundle that code as well. Uh, Beach uses Rollup by default. Configure Webpack to bundle Beach source code as well. Um, so so it's not really sort of exclusive in any way. It's kind of fun because it's like, uh, you know, why are bundlers called bundlers? Why are frameworks called frameworks? And then you're going to have to struggle with this whole idea of people will group it into the bundler Mm -hmm. category yeah. i guess just like react right react is not a framework it's just a library <laughs> <laughs> a lot of those fun conversations in the future maybe you yeah. need to just come up with like a word you know that describes exactly what is yeah. doing like not bundler yeah. but like what you know whatever that word is <laughs> like something that, like some synonym for bundling it's an amalgamator <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny because the other day uh, I was I was talking with uh, Gavin, uh, author of Parcel on Twitter, and basically pointing out like Parcel is actually not a bundler anymore. Parcel is trying to do much more than just a bundler. So uh, it's it's more like it's almost getting into the meta framework territory where um, you just write source code and bundle. Uh, Parcel will like serve and build everything for you, uh, and I think. Devon eventually said, uh, said he thinks he'll start to relabel Parsa as something about an application builder or application graph, whatever, <laughs> uh, which I think in some way uh, is, is interesting because we are going into these, uh, we're kind of growing outside of the, the narrow definition of what bundlers mean for web development. We're trying to get into these different permutations of build on top of that. And here's what you can do by adding a different dev server on top of bundler. Here's what you can do by, you know, taking a more opinionated approach uh, and grow on top of bundler. So I think it's, it's cool to have, um, cool to have all these different ideas trying to, trying to explore. I think there's still, um, but, but I guess like we are kind of used to like, oh, web. I think it's about time that we started to sort of, think resetting the expectation of what the development experience can be like. I love that because I remember when Webpack was the new kid on the block and it was like, oh my God, Webpack is so much faster than all these other things. Look how awesome it is. And then, you know, a few years later now it's like, okay, let's start to rethink. But it's so, it's awesome that, you know, we're starting as an industry to start thinking outside of the block, box, outside of the mm -hmm. block outside of the box, you know, thinking about, you know, maybe it's outside not a money, maybe that's not what we need. Yeah. <laughs> so like, um, you know, I'm, I don't know, uh, as long as, as long as it's easy to configure, because I'll be honest, every time I have to configure a build tool, I want to die like on the inside. Well, so beat is at this moment, it does have a config format, but most of the stuff is just command line flags mapping to the config file. Like, mm -hmm. 
the default CRA app works with zero, zero configuration. The default VCLI app works with zero configuration. Um, pretty much zero configuration. Uh, if you need like to configure PostCSS, you just add a PostCSS config file and, and it just loads it. Um, so let's say if you're just starting a typical app, right? What, what Parcel did really well is like 90% of the common cases, it just works out of the box. Um, you don't have to really configure much. And Feet is very opinionated in that regard. So if you just follow what Feet sort of suggests you to do in certain common scenarios, there's really not much you need to configure. So, uh, well, I, go ahead. I was just going to say I'm looking forward to it. Um, and we're almost at time, but Ben, if you have another question. So my, my question would be then as like a library author, what, mm -hmm. like, how should I publish my library to best behave with Veet? Publish a single yes module file that, and point your packgsons module field to it. So, so essentially, you still want to publish ES modules, but ideally, you want to pre-bundle it using Rollup. So, would uh, deep imports be annoying? Then, I guess. In a, uh, deep. Yes, um, it could. It's still it's supported if you want to do deep imports. Um, the pre-bundling is only there to sort of improve the network performance because when you have. Uh, it just creates congestion at the network level. But if you want to just like create maybe four to five split ES modules, that's also fine. That's not really a problem. All right. Well, that's good because we've got that in RxJS, so I was curious. Um, oh, yeah. In, our, in the same situation with Lodash ES in that regard. So we may have to. That's actually the weakest spot of Vite right now is third-party dependencies with a ton of imports. Yeah. Um, we need to find a way to better optimize that. But yeah. other than that, like five. Uh, it's not too bad. Okay. Yeah. yeah. As long as it's not like 600 files like yes, Lodash, yes, it should be fine. No, no it's nothing like that. Okay. Yeah. Then it should just work. Oh my God, Evan, I feel like we could talk to you forever about all the exciting yeah. things. We haven't even talked about VeetPress. Maybe the, we'll save it for another time. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I mean, everybody who's listening, yeah. definitely check out VeetPress um, because that's another exciting thing that Evan has been working on. And, uh, you know, really excited about Vue 3, really excited about Veet as well. I'm curious about what we call this sort of like new category of technology um mm -hmm. just watching watching like all of our communities right like inspire each other and i think vita is really going to start inspiring um everyone else you know so yeah i mean if it doesn't end up yeah my hope is like even if it doesn't end up being the new sort of uh like hottest newest like greatest tool, like <clears throat> I think this yeah. direction is definitely worth exploring. And I think yeah. future generations build tools should definitely sort of consider this as uh, approaches. Yeah.
No, I love it. I love it. Well, very cool. Um, you can follow Evan on Twitter at you, you, she, did I say it right? I'm always, yeah, it's pretty close. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you want to hear any more modern web podcasts, feel free to check out, uh, modern dot web. What is the website name? I think it's modern dot web.com. Anyways, if you search Modern Web Podcast, you'll find it. That's pretty terrible. We've been going through a revamp, so I'm confused now even of what we name our things. <laughs> and you can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Lush. And um, we'll see you on the next Modern Web Podcast. Thanks for listening. Come on. Come on, This podcast is sponsored by This.Labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. Let's go, cause we got a show for you.